Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Throughout this series, we've titled it Anatomy of the Soul, and we took that from what John Calvin referred to in the Psalms. Um, but throughout this series, we've been trying to help, uh, to help distinguish between what you're hearing in our culture about your emotions, um, because it's very polarized. There's one side of the equation that says your emotions are everything. And the true you is going to be found by you just kind of yielding uh, to your emotions and letting them guide the entirety of your life. And then there's another position on the whole other end of the spectrum that says you really don't need your emotions. And you can detach yourself, if you can, detach yourself from your emotions and your existence will be much better in this world. And so it's almost a stoic-like disattachment. But what we see in the Psalms, throughout the book of the Psalms, one of the most favorites of all Christians through the years, is a wholehearted way to live engaged with every part of our humanity. I, I believe that what we're looking at today is something that not only have each of us in this room, as well as those, that, those of you watching online, not, not only have we dealt with this issue in the past, we're dealing with it now, and most likely we will deal with it throughout our lifetime. And the reason I say that is that I've worked 
you know, for 25 years as a counselor and a life coach, I've worked uh, for over five years in the state penitentiary with the different populations of incarcerated people. Um, I have, I've worked with rich people and poor people, tall people and short people, thin people and fat people, smart people and not so smart people. Um, but across the whole spectrum of the people that I've worked with, I believe that deep inside each of us, we struggle with understanding our own dignity. We struggle with whether or not we really belong. And I, I, I really don't think it takes a lot to convince you that this is an abiding issue with you. Um, there might be some of you that are able to say, well, that, that's not my problem. It might not be in the forefront of your thinking, but it's something that isn't very far from it in any given moment. And oftentimes, a person who questions his or her dignity and whether she belongs will resort to a, a very extroverted expression of themselves or an imposition of themselves uh, in any given context because there's an insecurity that somehow, somewhere, people are going to know what they're really like. And so even in that extroversion, even in that over-the-top expression of who they are, they really are not expressing who they are at all. And then there's the other side of the spectrum, probably the one to which I'm the most inclined, where as an introvert, you almost never say anything at all. Because it's far easier to hold people at, a, at an arm's length by not sharing your opinion, by not sharing what your thoughts are. And so this is something that I, I, it really doesn't matter which part of the spectrum you land on, it's something that you have always dealt with, you're dealing with now, and you'll deal with the rest of your lives. It, it's somewhat interesting to me that over the past several years, there's been just a remarkable amount of resources that have been spent researching what social media has been doing in our culture. Um, I'm sure you've heard of some of that research and those conclusions over the last few years, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram or Pinterest. Uh, there's so many different ways that we can actually establish a profile. Now, what seems to fascinate researchers the most that are engaged in this is the, the simple fact that these applications allow us to be seen and known without really being seen and known. And what I mean by that is that Whenever you, and I don't, I have a Facebook account, but I haven't been on it for, every time I go on it, they welcome me back to Facebook, so if that tells you anything. Um, <clears throat> but th there's something in this, because, because what it did is, is, is develop within us this idea that a curator to sort through maybe a hundred photographs to find the optimal one. We could sort through a hundred different things that we said or have written, to find the right one. And the reason we did that is that we, we, we knew that we wanted people to kind of see us a certain way. Now, what has happened over the last few years is that we've actually come to a point 
where there's almost a new phase coming into vogue and uh, becoming popular in the way that we use social media. And there, there's a recent article that was done that I think is very, very interesting. It was done in Forbes magazine. And it proves to us that not all this research is negative. As much as you've heard about the dangers of social media and the blight that it is on our, our culture, there's a lot of research that's coming out to say some of these things are really helpful. One of these shifts is this new phase coming in. It, it's, it's called personal branding. And that's putting a different filter on the way that you curate or determine what, what you post or what you don't post. This is what Forbes magazine, Carrie uh, Kirpin from Forbes magazine wrote about this. She said, without question, social media has had a profound impact on the concept of a personal brand. Our lives become increasingly more public as, as we all share information on a variety of networks. This transition, transition hit us like a truck. First, uh, it was the kids spending time on Friendster, MySpace, and, and then Facebook. Now over 78% of the U.S. population has a social network profile. This behavioral shift has reverberating effects, not just in how we spend our time, but how we feel about ourselves. Now, this idea of a, of a personal brand represents a substantial shift about the information that you choose to make available to other people and the, and the information that you don't. You see, in the first phase, it was your best picture. But this personal brand issue has pushed it to a different place because just like companies that would try to brand a product and cause it to, to communicate to people what it would do and satisfaction and all of those things, we're trying to do that with ourselves now. But the interesting thing is that now we have to be more authentic for people to believe us. You see, in the, in the first phase of all of this, we, we thought people would believe us if we were our best selves. Now there's kind of a vulnerability that's starting to kind of work its way into it. And I don't think that that's all bad at all. But you see, all of that in that commonality that we share in that, it all begs a question about what, what I think is the most significant question that emerges in our minds when you consider Psalm 139. Why in the world would someone celebrate the fact that every single piece of information about you is completely known, even better than you know yourself? And perhaps even better, why would a person that's God-fearing actually benefit from believing that, that God knows every one of your thoughts? You see, I, 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 I think without getting to this, any contemplation or consideration of Psalm 139 is a complete waste of time. You, you, you see, it's one thing to, to not have any blinds on your windows, but it's entirely something else to know that someone thinks your thoughts before you think them. See, that's intimidating. I, I would venture to say there, there's not a one of us in the room that would sub subscribe to any application or algorithm that would actually know that much about you. It's too invasive. And so the question remains, why would someone celebrate and praise the fact that every piece of that information is known.
I think that's the burden of any consideration of this. Now, over the next few moments, I want to accomplish two things with you. Number one, I want to give you, in light of this historical moment that we live in, a, a context to better understand what David wrote in Psalm 139. And then secondly, I want to show you two, I think, very substantial benefits that come from this kind of strange consideration. And so the context for understanding, I think, needs to start with basically recognizing that intuitively, all of us understand the value of being known by other people. Um, for those of you that are people pleasers in this room, you, you've lived many years in your life in the awareness of that, that knowing that if you're not careful, you're running the risk of never being known. Because you know deep inside of you that everything that you say and do has more to do with what people expect from you than what who you really are. And if there isn't some breakthrough, if there isn't some process by which you actually overcome your desire to please others and be yourself, you run the risk of knowing that every one of your relationships, every single one of them, is founded on false perception because they don't know you. And nobody knows that but you. See, that's a challenging issue. Now, I think for this context, I want to go back to a verse that occurs within the first two chapters of the Bible in Genesis 2.25. Immediately, when the Bible describes the creation of humanity, immediately after that, it says this first relationship between this man and this woman, it says they were both naked. In Genesis 2.25, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now, most of us misunderstand that, that verse based on two limitations. Number one, we believe that the definition pertains only to a husband and a wife. I think that's the first limitation. The second one is that the nakedness mentioned here only pertains to physical nakedness. I, I don't believe that either one of those limitations is, is valid. Now, I think that there are three observations that can kind of open this up for us that helps us establish this context for understanding Psalm 139. Number one, at the time, there were only two human beings in the whole entire world at the time that this was written. And so it's quite possible, and probably more plausible than most of you have considered, that this is typifying every human relationship. Simply the fact that it's spoken between a husband and a wife doesn't mean that you can legitimately limit it to just marriage. The second is, is that this idea of being naked in, in this verse, it, it denotes the idea of being exposed or vulnerable without covering. And it does indeed apply to physical nakedness. But it can also apply to intellectual nakedness, emotional nakedness, uh, spiritual nakedness, financial nakedness, even legal nakedness. And so all said, there's actually six different aspects of your life that are either covered or uncovered. And so to limit it to physical nakedness is to actually do, I think, harm to what the verse is actually getting at. Now, the third observation that I think is helpful is that the idea of being ashamed in our English minds is quite different than it was in the Hebrew. Um, it, the, the general consensus in the English-speaking world that when you think of being ashamed, 
your referent is going to inside of you. It's your internal reaction to a circumstance like embarrassment. And the, yet the Hebrew idea is very different than that. It's, it's, the Hebrew idea was, didn't refer to the internal embarrassment that we think of. It. It, it, it referred to an external kind of ridicule that was put on you by somebody else. And so if that's true... This verse is defining what should be normative in every one of our relationships across the whole entire relational spectrum of our lives, and it refers to something far more than simply physical or sexual nakedness, which there's propriety to that, obviously, that pertains to marriage, but, but it pertains to every part of our life and every type of a relationship. But it, it's talking about not being ashamed. It's talking about you being so confident when other people see you so exposed, you have no fear of ridicule from them. That's very different than what most of us have thought. Now, after more than a decade of diligent research on the issues of guilt and shame, Brene Brown has made what I think are the very same conclusions about nakedness or vulnerability. And She's able to say that while it's extremely challenging and even difficult to accomplish in our culture today, it's, it's actually the very foundation of personal freedom and relational viability. In other words, if you don't learn how to be naked with other people, you'll never know who you really are. Your relationships really will not have stability in them at all. And it's remarkable when you look at it. Her research has helped her identify two benefits that come from having the courage to actually show up with people and be known by other people. And those two benefits are connection and belonging. Now, she defines them in a way that is remarkably consistent with the nakedness that Christianity explains to be one of our most basic or core needs or desires. Now, here's her two definitions of connection and belonging. Number one, Connection, she says, connection is the energy that is created between people when they they feel seen, heard, and valued, when they can give and receive without judgment. That kind of gets that external ridicule thing and captures it. And again, she defines belonging this way. She says, belonging is the innate human desire to be part of something larger than us because this... Yearning is so primal, we often try to acquire it by fitting in and by seeking approval, which are not only, not only hollow substitutes for belonging, but often barriers to it. Because true belonging only happens when we present our authentic and perfect selves to the world. Our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. Now, when, when I read these definitions several months ago, this idea of fitting in and belonging really kind of jumped out to me. So over the course of about, over the course of about two months, I, I became obsessed with how you all kind of thought of it, not, not just those of you in the room. But I ask, in two, uh, over a two-month period of time, I asked over 50 of my counseling and coaching clients, I said, which one... Fitting in or belonging, which one do you think has the most resistance in it in the beginning? And every single person I ask, all 50 of them, 
Um, they said, oh, that's easy. Belonging is way more, hard, more difficult in the beginning. It has way more resistance in the beginning. And I asked them, I said, why do you think that is? And they said, well, when you're fitting in, you're like a chameleon. And you change whatever color the situation is. Whatever shoes they wear, that's what you wear. However they talk is how you talk. Wherever they go is where you go. And you don't offer those disparaging opinions. You don't offer confrontational issues. And so belonging has all the resistance in it that you could possibly imagine, and fitting in as easy as pie. But then I asked him a second question. I said, over time, which one is more difficult? And every single one of them had the same question. Not a single one of you missed the test, the, these questions on the exam. And every single one of them said, oh, over time, fitting in is way more difficult. And I said, why is that? You see, even now, you probably know that intuitive, intuitively based on what I'm saying. And they said, well, fitting in becomes much more difficult because if you've committed yourself to belonging, over a period of time, people know who you are. And if they've stuck around, there's no more resistance. And fitting in, on the other hand, over time, because becomes this sinking feeling that you lose yourself because you've never voiced your opinion. You never wore exactly what you wanted to wear because it wouldn't fit with that group. You didn't go where you wanted to go because they wouldn't go there. And over time, fitting in becomes far more difficult. It has far more resistance in it. But I want you to think about that for a moment because there's a huge shift in there. You see, belonging in the beginning takes a lot of courage, a lot of bravery to show up and to be seen. And fitting in is easy. It's the, it's the most natural path of least resistance, if you want to call it. But over time, fitting in becomes difficult internally. That's the, as I looked at that data, it was just amazing to me because what people could see is that the external resistance is what they were facing in the beginning, but they paid the internal price over very long. There was a sense in which they knew. Nobody knew them. And that was far more difficult than people rejecting you. No, I, I seriously don't know that there's a better example that I can give you of the incredible tension that we live in today in regard to being fully known than the fact that every single person that I asked knew this intuitively, intuitive, intuitively and yet there were many of them, I'd say maybe a third of them, that have, in, in spite of them knowing this, they've never, ever gotten over the fact that they're people-pleasers. They still haven't shown up with their children. They still haven't shown up with their spouses. They still, they certainly haven't shown up when it comes to social media. And so there's a sense in which they're kind of, and, and again, I would ask you to be a little more nuanced in your thinking because we want to say, well, I'm like that or I'm like that, but it's not true. And some things you can be a people pleaser and others you're really committed to showing yourself and it depends on how you look at it and so some of us are people pleasers when it comes to work or when it comes to what we do out in the world when it comes to what we post we we will not draw fire based on what we say or what we don't say but then there's situations that we're radically committed to people understanding who we really are i i personally don't think that there's another way that I could communicate it better than the fact that 100% of the people got the questions right, and yet a third of them still can't act upon that truth. 
And so there's a context here that I think kind of opens this up for us, and I think now we're ready. After 25 minutes of introduction, now we're going to quickly go through 24 verses in Psalm 139, and you're still going to get out by the Bronco game at 11 <laughs> o'clock. Okay, the benefits of being known. Now, in the opening verse of the psalm, it describes the thoroughness of God's knowledge of who we are. You have searched me. It carries the idea of a diligence and even difficult, painful probing that has happened in the way that the psalmist writes this, the way that David writes this, is the occurrence of something in the past with an abiding result in the present. David doesn't feel as if he's getting probed presently. He just feels that he's been difficultly probed in the past with an abiding result in the present. In the second clause, and you've known me. That refers to the conclusion of the probing. David's able to say, man, you have sifted me like wheat. And you, here's the paraphrase that I wrote. Uh, You've diligently examined me, and the result is that you know me now exhaustively. Now, these verses challenge what we believe about a lot of things, but primarily because we have to choose. There's this popular adage out there that I hear almost incessantly from teenagers. No one understands me. That simple statement in the first verse challenges whether you are going to choose to believe that or whether that God knows you exhaustively. You see, it forces you into one camp or the other because you cannot go around telling people that no one understands me. Some of you as spouses, you're able to say, well, my spouse doesn't understand me. Nobody understands me. And it's like, stop a moment. This verse is simply saying that God knows you exhaustively. So for you ever to utter one more time that nobody understands you, you better do it with a little bit of clarity. Now, in verse 6, it's yet another expression of of our inability to know ourselves the way that God knows and understands us. And it says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And it's better rendered, it's way too difficult. It's beyond me. I can't attain that. And so David is simply, he, he's, he's recognizing the fact that someone really does understand him far better than he'll ever understand himself. Now that moves us quickly to verses 2 to 5, and David gives five aspects of God's knowledge that should prove that he knows you better than you know yourself. Number one, he talks about our actions. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. That's this metaphorical language. He's saying, you know me from top to top of my head to the bottom of my feet. You know when I stand up and sit down. That simply was metaphorical, saying, every single thing I do, you know it. The second thing that he says that kind of convinces us of this is our thoughts. He says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Now, you have to stop there because in your English mind... You basically put the relationship between God and your thoughts afar. But that's not what David meant at all. David was referring to his knowledge of his thoughts. In other words, it's better rendered, you think my thoughts before I, they're even in my head. You know my thoughts before I know them. That's pretty exhaustive. So our actions, our thoughts, and then thirdly, our patterns of life... He says in in verse 3, he says, You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. This refers to everyday routines and practices of our lives. And fourthly, our words. In verse 4, it says, 
Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. As with his thoughts, he says, actually, before a sound goes into this world off of my tongue, you know exactly what it's going to be. And the fifth and final thing is that he refers to his spatial existence. Now, this not only deals with verse 5, it deals with verse 7 to 10. And he says, you hem me in behind and before. And he's basically saying, there's no place that I can go that you haven't been to before. There's no place that I can retreat to that you haven't already been. And so based on those five different characteristics, he, he's, he just quickly proves, he said, that there is no way you know yourself quite that way. Now, in verses 11 to 12, he, it's a summation of David's understanding of God's knowledge of him, and it far exceeds his capacity to know himself. He says, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. That's an expression to your sensory perception. He says, surely I'm going to go into the darkness and then I can't even see myself. Surely I'm going to get into a place that I can't even hear myself think. How many times have you used that reverence? And he's basically referring to a time that your ability to receive empirical information is gone. You're blind. You're deaf. You can't feel a thing. But then he goes on and he says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The light is... The night is bright as the day, for darkness is light with you. And it describes God's ability never to be blinded, never to miss a word, never to miss an audible tone or a smell. It's all the same to him. His sensory perception is always acute. It's always turned on. Now, that brings you to what he concludes about all of this when he says in the last two verses, in verse 23 and 24, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. He's basically saying, I can't. I want you to sift me out and know my heart. Try me and know my, my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. David isn't intimidated by this. He's seeking it. He's inciting God to be more diligent with him. Now, that brings us to verses 13 to 16, which are really interesting because it explains a, real, a significant shift in his thinking from what God knows about him to how God actually had created him. Now, stay with me. This is really important. He says, I praise you, for I, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now, there, there was some crazy, crazy Christian stuff that came out in the late, in the 90s and stuff. It was like, God don't make no junk. But this is kind of close to that. I hated that phrase, just like I hated the, the, those bracelets. What would Jesus do? I can barely bring myself to say that. But there's something about what David is saying here that is really interesting because he's not thinking about what God knows now. He's thinking about what God has done, not just in bringing him into the creation, but the way he's maintained his presence in his whole life. Now, he explains three reasons why we should be thankful for the way that God created us. And it really doesn't matter whether you came out of the womb ready to be put on a poster. You're so attractive, so strong, so smart. Or whether you walk with a limp. He is talking about something here that speaks to the very essence of who you are. And he's basically saying, well, God did it on purpose. And there's three things that kind of jump off the page when you read this. He said, first is your personality. 
He said, you formed my inward parts. That's, in, in the Hebrew, it's a reference to your kidneys, and it's not going to the bathroom. It's actually talking about your personality. When you were in your mother's womb, God assigned a personality or a temperament to you. So that was an accident. Now, some of you have tried to blame your parents and maybe bad siblings for your personality. But now, what you did with your personality is something very different than the one that he gave you. But we don't get a common issue. There's a diversity of personalities in this room that God gave when children were in the womb. The second is our size and our stature. My frame was not hidden from, from you, for I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of, of the earth. That, that's primarily a reference to your skeletal structure. And whether you've got small, fragile bones or bones like Clydesdale's, God put them together in the womb. And it deals with, I, I think, a lot of things, probably even your constitution. Now, the third and the final thing is the most intriguing, which I think most people think about when they think of Psalm 139. And it's this idea of constitution. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book. They were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there, was, there wasn't one of them. He's basically saying that God wrote a certain number in a book, and that would be the days that you would live. Now, every single commentary that I checked, everybody says, well, this is God setting kind of like it says in the book of Job, a limit to how long you would live. And that's kind of consistent with what Paul told the Areopagus in Acts 17 and verse 26, that he determined the boundary of your inhabitation and the point in time in human history that you would live. It's kind of similar to that. But this is going beyond simply the number of days that you'll live. This is speaking to how those days would be lived. Would they be strong? Or would you be this frail, fragile person? All of that is in the scope of what he de describes here. Now, that particular section challenges not what you believe about nobody understands me or God really understands everything about me more than I do. It doesn't challenge that so much as it challenges what you're concluding about who you are physically. For all of you that have lamented the fact that you have too big of a nose or too slanted eyes or your mouth is too large or your bottom is too big. <laughs> There's a lot of things that I've filtered right there. <laughs> this is actually saying that you're kicking against God. You've concluded that something is better than his idea. In other words, you became like the Ford Motor Company. You've always got a better idea. And what David is doing is pushing you into a social media application that knows everything about you, far more than you ever would want to divulge. And it shines a light over every part of your physical being and how you've lived in this world and says, it's exactly the way it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to be this tall, dark, beautiful model. You're supposed to be this short, not too looking, frumpy clerk. But you see, we don't like that. So what in the world could be the benefit of being known quite like that? What are those benefits? Now, I, I believe that there's two of them that emerge if we really 
think about this and we embrace what the Bible tells us about not only God's knowledge, but how he created us and how he's attended our lives. The first is that now we know we belong. Why? Why would that come from? Because you probably didn't think that on your own. I, I think it comes from the fact that now you can finally be confident that you're never going to be found out. You see, the reason that we don't want to be vulnerable throughout Brene Brown's research is that we know that sooner or later someone's going to hear us and figure it out. Someone's going to see us or someone's going to actually get an angle or perspective on our life when they read our papers or they hear us speak or they watch us interact with our family. They're going to figure it out and we're not who they thought they were. They're not. We're not who they thought we were. But if we're known like this, you can't be found out. Whatever you're thinking about yourself has to be found out, actually. Now, the second thing that emerges immediately out of this is this weird idea of dignity. Now, I, I can tell you in all my work in the jails and the prison systems, this is a, this is a hard part, hard thing for someone to believe that they, they're actually not just a, a piece of crap. I'm sorry, I couldn't filter that one. But um, because, you see, they've done something terribly wrong. You know it. It was put in the paper. They, 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 they sat in a courtroom, and when the judge swung her gavel, they were guilty. Now, they told me something in prison. They said, they tell you that they didn't do what they're in here for, and they're always telling you the truth because they always got a plea deal. But it doesn't matter what deal they got convicted of. They knew that they did something wrong. That's why they're in there. Now, that's harder to overcome, but some of you know that if you lost a child or if you were reckless and you destroyed your marriage or you lost your business and you lost all your finances and perhaps even squandered your health, that person is guilty, and they know it. But there's something about what these verses say, and we can find dignity in them because you're exactly who you're supposed to be. Your life came into the world exactly the way God created it, and he's attended it. He's hemmed it in in the front and the back. It doesn't matter where you're going or where you've been. You know exactly where you are. Now, I, as a theologian, it took me a long time to grasp this. I lost my eye in 1970. And it wasn't until 2003 that I actually could talk about it with you all. Now, not all of you all. Some of you weren't even born in 2003. But, and most of you were born in 1970. But... All of that time, over 30 years, I begrudged the fact that I never could catch a ball like I did before. I couldn't hit a nail with a hammer for three years. I still don't know exactly how I do it, because if you cover one of your eyes, I'll beat you every time. <laughs> but does this speak to that? that I actually can be okay with who Russ McKendry is. Maybe now for the first time. That's dignity. Not because I'm better than you, but simply because I'm okay with who I am. Now, I said in the beginning that this is possibly one of the biggest things that you've always dealt with and you never really recognized it. I can't believe I'm doing this and I'm going to squander a whole bunch of counseling business. Because it usually takes me a while to persuade people of these two things. 
that you have to belong because God still hold out, holds out his hands to you. After all of this, he still holds his hands out. He says, why won't you come? I, I, I paved this way for anyone that will come, but you still won't come. Because there's some of you that have never believed in you. You've never shown up. According to Brene Brown, you've never become real. I, I think it's really ironic when you look at all of her research because her conclusions are essentially what the Bible tells us about ourselves. The only question is whether we really believe them. We have the courage to be who we truly are, to show up and to be vulnerable with one another. And just maybe when we do that, it inspires other people to do the same. Just maybe, not all the time. I want, I, I want to close with a, a, a quick quote that is taking, taken, and I, I'm giving referent, uh, credit. Brene Brown embeds this quote. It's from Margaret Williams' famous book. Most of you have probably read it, The Velveteen Rabbit. She uses this particular quote in the context of what possibly could cause you to risk so much that others might know you. And this is the quote. Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you. And then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You, you become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily, who have sharp edges, or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time By the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out. Wow, there's two characteristics of my life. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't in my notes, by the way. I just kind of dawned on me right there. By the, time, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in, in the joints. And very shabby. But these things, these things don't matter at all. Because, one, because once you're real, you can't be ugly. Except. 
to people who don't understand. That's pretty powerful. Interestingly, it was written in 1922 in a children's book for children. How many times have you read it to your children, to your grandchildren, perhaps? You really cannot be ugly when you're real. All right. I'm going to take one question. So take your best shot. <laughs> just, just one and we'll be done today. I know I've gone over a little bit. The Velveteen Rabbit passage seems to indicate that God's loving us is what makes us real. If so then, aren't we as real at birth as we are at our death? Where does God grow? I hate these two for ones. Or does God grow in his love for us? Herman Bovink said something very interesting, that it's impossible for God to love anything but himself. I, I think there's quite a bit there without going into all the detail of it, that as he's brought forth to creation, he tends to set him love, his love upon himself. And I, I, I think the whole concept of time is just given to us as some sort of a, an accommodation for our frailty. And so we tend to think of everything as a process, but I don't think he does. I think when he looks at your life, it's not simply that skin that you would kill for, that you had when you were born, or that terrible limp that you had when you were old, and the wrinkled eyes. I think he tends to see the whole thing as one. And I think these kinds of verses, they dare us to believe something good about who we are. They dare us to, to push ourselves away from the things that we've told ourselves that aren't true or consistent with them. Like, I'm never going to amount to anything. Or I think I am the ugliest person in the world. These verses are perhaps even the one that I've shared with you, that no one understands me. That seems to be very common today. These verses challenge you. They bring you to these junctures. What are you going to believe? That someone understands you perfectly or that no one understands you. Those aren't the same. Do you believe you're just the ugly duckling or do you believe that you're exactly who God created you to be in spite of the fact that you're the ugly duckling? See, you can't believe both. The problem is that most of our Christianity simply asks the superficial questions. Do you believe you're a sinner? Do you believe that Jesus came to save sinners? Have you asked him to save you? Those are the simple things. These are the harder ones. These are the ones that cut to the core of what you believe about God what you believe about what he does in the lives of his people because you either believe him or you don't. Let's pray. Father, I don't exactly know why 
There's been so much emotion around this today for me. Oh, I know in the beginning when it came to introducing my daughter and her wonderful husband and their son. That one almost wrecked me. But I tend to think that there's something just so sacred about this space that I can't get very far from it today. Oh, I, I imagine there's people in this room that, that wish I wasn't so emotional. I might be one of them. But I can't help but see the faces of thousands of people in 25 years that have absolutely zero confidence in their own dignity. And they have never once sensed that they belong. And it has nothing to do with what you've told of them about their lives. It has everything to do with, with what others have told them, perhaps even what they've told themselves, and the wonder and the magnificence of this song is that it dares us to lay that down and believe what you say to be true. Maybe the saddest part about this whole thing is that there's going to be some people in this room that stand up a few moments from now and reject it one more time. Only to live in their minds with no dignity and no belonging. Help us in these moments, I pray that we wouldn't be one of those people. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.